0: Welcome to Linux Action News, episode 220, recorded on December 19th, 2021. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And we start this week with a real mess. Following up on our story last episode, it appears the previous mitigations to address the Log4Shell vulnerability may not be enough. The Log4J team has released a new patch to fix issues that have been discovered at a rapid pace. A mess indeed, Wes, and it's been dubbed a design failure of catastrophic proportions by security
0: researchers. If you didn't catch last week's episode, the crux of the issue really is Log4J. That's where this vulnerability exists. It's part of a Java-based Apache library that's present in lots of cloud software, local software, and it's used in a lot of industries and governments. It's a real go-to tool. It's about as ubiquitous as these kinds of things get. And so there's globally millions of servers
1: that have this logging tool installed and are vulnerable. For a sense of just how bad, well, cybersecurity firm Checkpoint revealed on Monday that since the weekend, there have been over 830,000 attacks using this exploit. Making matters worse, the team has had to issue two separate patches, causing server and application administrators to have to perform a series of emergency updates. We've been hearing from many of you that staffing is tight around the holidays, adding a particular end-of-year pressure to an already bad situation. Okay, so to try to make all this clear, we're going to break it it down into a timeline
0: for you. So, all of this happened, obviously, in 2021, and it starts on Wednesday, November 24th. That is when the Log4J vulnerability is first disclosed to the Apache Foundation by a developer at the Alibaba Cloud Security Team. Then, on Friday,
1: November 26th, that's the date that the vulnerability is actually recorded into the CVE list. But it isn't until Thursday, December 9th that reports actually surfaced about a new zero-day vulnerability, termed Log4Shell, impacting Minecraft servers, of all things. Then, just a day later, on Friday, December 10th, the public became aware of Log4Shell. And we learned that Steam and iCloud, among several other prominent online services, were vulnerable. Then, on December 11th, Jen Easterly, the director of the U.S. Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, released the following statement. The Log4j vulnerability is the most serious vulnerability that I've seen in my decades-long career. Everyone should assume that they are exposed and vulnerable and to uh, check and make sure that they're not vulnerable.
0: Then on Tuesday, December 14th, reports of 200,000 attempted attacks across the globe came in from Checkpoint. And cybersecurity companies CrowdStrike and Mandiant said that they saw Chinese and Iranian state actors leveraging the Log4J vulnerability. And then, on Wednesday, December 15th, an updated fix. A second Log4J vulnerability patch was issued, CVE 2021-45046,
1: prompting the Apache Foundation to try to get the
0: word out as fast as possible.
1: Now, as we record on Sunday, December 19th, most of the activity observed so far appears to be pretty much just low-level threats, basic use of these new exploits. But as the volume of Log4Shell attacks increases, higher-level threats like ransomware will surely follow. Because there's more than 35,000 Java packages, something like 8% of the Maven Central repository, that are impacted by Log4Shell. I mean, this thing's everywhere. Ooh,
0: yeah, no doubt. (laughs) This is going to be something we'll be hearing about well into 2022. Um, There is some promising numbers coming in. There's a lot of stats we could throw at you. But I think this one really shows you how hard the open source community is working. Because in less than a week, 4,620 of those affected packages, that's about 13%, have been fixed. That really shows you the hustle of the community. And of course, the information security researchers, the Apache Foundation, and the Log4J developers, who are really working hard to try to get all of us secure. Our uh, thoughts, though, really, at the end of the day... (laughs) are with the admins that have to spend that extra time those late evenings or those weekends to get this stuff installed
1: so that way we're all secure our thanks to you now for a bit of good news everyone a project we haven't updated you on for a while has a new update with some great features pipewire 0.3.41 I have to admit, it is hard for us not to jump on every
0: single release and tell you all about it in each episode because these releases have been great and they're regular. They're constantly releasing new updates. But Pipewire 0.3.41 delivers on some special improvements that we wanted to tell you about. Number one with a bullet right there is Flatpak sandboxed applications are going to behave a lot better with Pipewire. So think of all of the potential AV applications that might be Flatpak either now or in the future. Also, there was continued work on enhancing jack compatibility. And one of those Flatpak apps I talked about, OBS, can now capture from monitor devices again when using Wireplumber, which we had for a bit, we lost, and it's back, and it's back in a better way now. And then you got your standard memory leak fixes, your improved buffer memory allocation, all that stuff you always like to see in a project as well.
1: And for you AirPlay users out there, well, you might appreciate that there's a new module that you can use to stream right to your AirPlay devices. And if you're stuck in the Zoom lifestyle like I certainly am, well, the Echo Cancellation module has voice detection enabled now. This update should be trickling down to a distribution near you, sometimes sooner than you might think. In Linux land, even old tried-and-true
0: assumptions can get revised, revisited, and disrupted on the regular. And this week, we have news of changes a-coming to your precious Extended 4 file system. At least, how it mounts. Now, this change has actually been in the works since about 2018, but if you've been keeping an eye
1: on the Linux kernel development, all signs are pointing to this change shipping soon. It looks like in Linux 5.17, EXT4 could be making use of the kernel's new mount API. This new API is meant to address limitations in the older mount design. Here's Canonical's Christian Bronner from last year's Open Source Summit explaining some of the advantages of the new API.
2: Well, the obvious cool thing is that it's... uh... Instead of being path based, uh, something I just critiqued seconds earlier, uh, the new mount API is file descriptor based. In fact, you can use the new mount API without using any paths at all, which is obviously always excellent for security. Um, And instead of having a single syscall to do all of the things at the same time, the new mount API is split into multiple syscalls.
0: Now, I'm not a developer that's pushing the limits of current mount API possibilities, but Bronner articulates a list of issues in the full talk, which we will have linked in the show notes. Right now, the extended four patches have been landing in the development branch for Linux 5.17, and it looks like all the necessary stuff is in place for the transition to happen with the
1: release of Linux 5.17. Well, speaking of Linux 5.17, a big patch of code to support Apple's M1 has been submitted. And it appears work to support the M1 Pro and Max chips is going pretty well. Well, Project Lead Hector Martin noted in an end-of-year update that some of the
0: challenges posted by the new SSE did throw them for a loop. Apple in the M1 Max and Pro has shifted from using a component that seemingly had ties all the way back to one of the original iPhones to now something that apparently can scale up in both terms of memory and CPU cores, potentially hinting at more powerful future Macs. But it did require
1: Hector and the team to make updates to support the increased physical address space. Amusingly, Martin wrote, while implementing support for this in Linux, we ran into a bug in Linux's ARM SMMU support that had been there ever since 52-bit address support was introduced. This was breaking systems with more than 256 terabytes of RAM. I wonder why nobody noticed. Either way, Linux now correctly supports standard ARM systems with up to 4 petabytes of RAM. When you see people online asking the cliche question, is this worth the effort?
0: Well, this is a great example of how the effort to port to Apple's M1SOC has benefited the wider Linux ecosystem and why it's important that everything they're doing is going upstream. And just as we record, Hector just got Wi-Fi working after what he calls a, quote, dumb fix. (laughs) And the team also recently got the touchpad and keyboard working on the M1-powered MacBooks, as well as audio playback. And to help you kind of sort where they're at in all of this, they have published a visual overview of sorts that gives you a state of component support right now.
1: Yeah, that's really nice, and just about the only way I managed to keep track of all of these developments. Perhaps the most surprising update came from Hector directly on Twitter, tweeting that Apple had recently made a change to macOS 12.1 that's only purpose seems to be to help the Asahi team, writing, quote, Looks like Apple changed the requirements for MacO kernel files in 12.1, breaking our existing installation process, and they also added a raw image mode that will never break again and doesn't require MacO then people said they wouldn't help. This is intended for us.
0: Yeah, he was actually pretty insistent about that. Even in following threads, he said, seriously, I can't think of a single reason why they would add this for themselves. They build real Makos with their own process. They have no use for raw images. They are basically saying, he says, quote, hey, use this. It's easier and we won't break it in the future.
1: He follows up by saying this is for Asahi. Well, some in the thread speculated perhaps this was a move to help Microsoft get Windows Arm Edition working on these new Macs, but Hector disagreed. You know what? I actually agree with Hector. This tracks with how
0: Apple often behaves when you look at other past examples outside of this space. Um, It's, in one word, strange, but there is a bit of a rhyme to their reason. You see, Apple's never just going to come right out and release documentation. They're not going to hold a session at WWDC. It really just comes down to Apple's middle management will never okay an allocation of valuable developer time like that. It's just not going to happen. But there are engineers inside the company that recognize they can make these small little changes that make a big difference. And they are small enough changes that upper management would literally never notice even in 100 years until, you know, we start talking about it. (laughs) And why wouldn't they want this? Think about it. Surely Apple would like to use their own SoC in their data centers. Apple is a big Linux user internally on x86 right now. They use it for iCloud servers, and they use Linux for a lot
1: of internal hardware testing on prototypes on the routine. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And either way, I think we're both of the mindset, who cares exactly why they're doing this? I mean, it's a positive change, and it looks like it's going to be a change that sticks around. Which should make it a lot easier to run Linux on this shiny new Mac hardware. That's going to benefit a lot of users for a long time.
0: Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60 day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode is really the Linux geeks cloud they've got 11 data centers worldwide and they've been hard at work for 18 years making this the best experience for running applications on linux if you want to build it yourself and really start from the ground up or you want to deploy something with a single click they've got excellent options for you and regardless of which direction you go the performance is always incredible I wouldn't be sticking with Linode for all these years if it didn't actually just scream. I mean, that's the bottom line for me right there. But then I realized, like, the dashboard's great. The customer service is the best. And the industry, there's all these things, too, right, that are just fantastic. But when you really start to use Linode for a while you kind of start picking up on some of the little improvements you can use by the command line tool or taking advantage of the API, or maybe you're already ahead of me and doing something like Ansible to manage your infrastructure like I should be. Linode works great with all of that stuff as well. Terraform, Kubernetes, yep, absolutely. So go try it out because with $100, that's really saying something. That's Linode saying we're confident enough that if we give you $100 on our platform, you're going to really get a chance to try it. And when you try it, when you can really try it with that $100, you're going to like it. That's the message they're sending there. I think that's a real confident move on their part, and I love it. And I think you're going to like it, too. I think it's a great fit for our audience. So go over there right now. Grab that $100 in credit and support the show. Go learn something. Go try something. Go deploy something in production. It's linocom slash LAN. And also a big holiday thank you to Ting for making this show possible and for all of you who support the show by going to linux.ting.com. That's where you go if you're sick of overpaying for your sales service. Go see how much you could save, and then. Take 25 bucks off that. Linux.ting.com. Ting is going to give you access to the big carrier networks, nation to nationwide networks, you know, the big ones that you heard of, but at a way better rate, with way better customer service and no contracts ever. That is essentially the Ting recipe. You go over there to linux.ting.com. You put your phone information in. They're going to have something that's compatible because they support the big networks. Once you get everything sorted, Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in. You go to their dashboard, which is great, by the way, and you get activated in minutes. It really is a smarter way to do mobile. I've been a Ting customer since 2013. I mean, I'm not sure, but I think that's longer than I've had a kid. Possibly. Maybe not but it's close to at least one of the ages of my kids. And there's a reason. It's smarter. It's a better way to do mobile. It's simple. And ironically, the fact that there's no contract actually makes me want to stick around longer. (laughs) It's just one of those things. And why not get access to the same big networks you already have, but pay less for it? That's the Ting idea. Linux.Ting.com. Just about any phone will work, and you can get started in minutes, and it's a great way to support the show and save yourself some money. So head over there right now, Linux.Ting.com and see how much you could save, and then take 25 bucks off that.
1: Linux.ting.com We wanted to end today by checking in on something that matters to all of us. Keeping podcasting healthy and decentralized. To that end, we had a chance to sit down with Dave Jones from the Podcasting 2.0 Index. Dave shared with us their very simple mission preserve,
2: protect, and extend the open podcasting ecosystem. We started by asking Dave, what was the motivation
1: to create a brand new open source podcast index?
2: I guess the abbreviated version of that is that uh, a guy I've been working with for a long time, widely known in podcasting, co-invented podcasting is Adam Curry. And uh, Adam uh, and I had been friends for, you know, probably 10 years or more working on various projects uh, around RSS and uh, feed aggregation and OPML and we um, built a, jointly built a uh, show notes system for his podcast, uh, no the No Agenda show, and which you know is huge, got about a million listeners. And so we we had kind of been through the trenches in in software, uh, our aggregation software and RSS. But he called me uh, about a year and a half ago and said um, maybe a little bit longer back and said, hey, you know. This this whole thing with Apple sort of controlling the default search, uh, the sort of the yellow pages of podcasting, number one, makes no sense. And number two, it's concerning with all the deplatforming going on and uh, and all this kind of thing. And so, you know, there there, you what you end up with is this what's supposed to be an open, decentralized uh, system of podcasting built on RSS. And that's true. It mostly operates that way. But then when you look at uh, in, in practice, where do you go to find podcasts and where do all those things live? Everything goes to Apple, which is, you know, the, literally the largest com- company in the world. So you have this, this huge dichotomy here between what podcasting is supposed to be at a technical level and what it actually is in practice. And he's like, you know, I want, we've, we really need to change this. And, and we, have, we have the chops to do it. So why don't we uh, get together and create a, a, an index to begin with, an, an open directory of podcasts, and then tie an API to it to where any app developer can write an app and just hook into it for free. We'll have it be donation-based and not you know, not a paid product. And then we'll do a podcast to go along with it. And as we build it, we'll just podcast about what we're doing. And hopefully we'll get a whole bunch of app developers on board uh, that are struggling to pay for all the infrastructure that it takes to run a backend for a podcast app. We'll make that easier for them. And uh, in in the process, we'll build this alternative directory to Apple so that we can take that centralization away. And then in the process, we'll we'll get, or excuse me, one of the, one of the elements of it will be, we'll give the whole database away. So that's, I was like, you know, hey, that sounds like a challenge. Sounds fun to do. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. And so that's kind of where it was born about a year and a half ago.
0: Dave and I had so much to talk about, and there are a lot of great features and abilities that they want to enhance podcasting with in the RSS standard. And when I looked through it, I liked all of them. (laughs) Really, I really couldn't be more excited about this. And I think I also feel like it could have come at a better time with companies like YouTube and Facebook just announced they want to get into podcasting within, like, the last
1: week. And one that we've been watching closely in this space is Spotify as well. And, of course, Apple, who continues to dominate. Some major players clearly want a piece of the action. A decentralized tool that innovates around an open standard could be what manages to keep podcasting indie. Yeah, I mean, what they're trying to accomplish with the podcast index and podcasting
0: 2.0 is essentially prevent a YouTube of podcasts where you have one company controlling the entire medium, which is what they would like to do. The YouTube initiative clearly would be a success when they have more podcasts exclusively on their platform. That's how they all work here. So that's what Adam Curry and Dave Jones are trying to prevent. And there was a lot more we discussed with Dave, including some of those new features they want to bring to RSS and to make podcasting better. And we'll have a complete chat with all of that and a lot more in Linux Unplugged in early January. So don't miss that. And don't miss a single episode of Linux Action News. Be sure you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes.
1: And at linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch.
0: Good news for our patrons and those of you who've wanted to support the network. We have a new network membership and you'll get Linux Action News completely ad-free when you join and all the other shows. Go to jupiter.party to sign up for that.
1: And we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this
0: week.